today on a very special episode of the Annie Graham Journey. Everybody, can I please have your attention? Ryan and I have a huge announcement. Oh my gosh! Wow. Over the weekend, Ryan, Bailey, Howard, and I got divorced. Divorced? Just so you know, it's totally amicable. We're fine. We don't need people here to take sides. The last thing that we want is any kind of drama. Wait. Sorry, when did you get married? Um, like a week ago. We got really wasted and just felt right. You didn't invite any of us? We are getting divorced, Andy. This is such a raw time. God, baby, you know, with people's reactions to this, I wonder if we made a mistake. Ryan, I changed my mind. Okay, fine. You know what? This actually isn't amicable at all, and we actually do need people to take sides. Who's on my side? Quickly, we don't have much time. Charlie and I doctored a paternity test to make it look like Frank is Charlie's dad. But the tests were actually inconclusive. There was too much blood in the bucket to tell. The reason I'm telling you all this is because I'm playing both sides so that I always come out on top. Bad anxiety, man. If you have anxiety, I feel for you. I feel for you. You're on your own with that, man. (sighs) People don't get it, man. Here's the best two things I learned about anxiety. Number one, people that don't suffer from anxiety have no clue how anxiety works. None. My friends used to be like, dude, relax. Calm down, dude. No! (laughs) What do you think? This is a switch I flick on and off? Here's the second thing I learned about anxiety. The people that don't suffer from anxiety are the people who cause anxiety. (laughs) All right? Nothing freaks me out more than being around a bunch of calm people. It stresses me out. I'm like, what what do they know that we don't know right now? Did they take something? Were we supposed to take something? Here's one calm guy welcoming you on the Enneagram Journey podcast. My name is Joel, and today's guest with the Enneagram Godmother is Jason Adam Miller, Enneagram 5, pastor at South Bend City Church, and author of When the World Breaks, which you of course can find the link for in the show notes. Today we're making promiscuous a good word with positive connotations. Are you a non-anxious person? What it's like for a 5 to plan a church? And for all of my fellow feeling repressed friends, what pulls the feelings up in you? Before we get to Jason and Suzanne, December the 9th, show up, either in Dallas or online. Then pay attention for the day. Be honest with yourself and don't get attached to the results. Suzanne is going to be teaching on these four mantras, show up, pay attention, tell the truth, don't attach to the results, and there couldn't be a better time for it than right before Christmas in the new year. December 9th at the Micah Center. Click on the link in the show notes or visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com to register for a great, wonderful day of community and teaching. Also, you're going to hear in today's episode the genesis of LTM's latest very cool shirt. It's simple and it's great. It says, I was reading Richard Rohr before it was cool. White tee, black lettering, all cool. That nice tri-blend feeling, ah, it's great. Get yours. Grab one for someone else for Christmas while they're in stock. You're going to find it online in the L-Team store at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. 
Thank you for your continued support of the podcast and of Joe and Suzanne and their work at LTM. Leave one of those five-star reviews if you have the moment. And I hope we get to see you at the Micah Center or an upcoming event in 2024. Now, friends, time for Jason and Suzanne. (laughs) Hi, Jason. Hey, Suzanne. It's good to meet you. It's good to meet you, too. And I'm not sure what to make of the fact that uh, I just got a text from Luke that said, good luck. With Jason. <laughs> let's get your interpretation of that, that first. Let's yes, do let's this. Do. Yeah. Well, what's funny is I was going to tell you what's fun about So Luke's like one of my three best friends in the whole world. And Suzanne, I mostly know you. I'm familiar with your work. I mostly know you because every time you're going to be on his podcast, I'm like, thank God, because somebody needs to have a conversation with Luke right now. <laughs> and I'm just like rooting for you. I'm like, get him, Suzanne. Get I mean, in a loving way, right? Like help him do his work for God's sake. So that's anyway, fabulous. That's, that's the majority of my experience of you. And I'm, it's great to meet you. Uh, it's great to meet you too. Luke does martyr a little bit around me, <laughs> suggesting that uh, he doesn't understand why I pick on him. And, you know, all I can say is I work with what you bring me. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's very nice to meet you. I got to back up. I'm sorry. I have to defend Luke a little bit. Oh, don't, you don't need to do that. <laughs> The number is it good for Luke for you to defend him? It it is. Okay. I think we sevens have to stick together a little oh, bit. Oh, there it is. There it is, Jason. All right. So you just met Suzanne, and then when yep. people meet Whitney, they're like, "Someone, all right, someone who's gonna keep Joel in check." Here we go. It's bring Joel to Jesus. It's just, that's exactly how I feel about Whitney. <laughs> actually, I told you. I'll just clarify. I don't. Luke doesn't need kept in check. Well, he he might, but that's not what I'm happy about. What I'm happy about is that you help him have a damn feeling. There we go. There you, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm like, I tell Luke, I'm like, Luke, I have to find out that you're having a hard day by listening to any woman roughly your mother's age talk to you on your podcast. And that's how I find out what's actually going on in your life down here. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. what pulls it out. For Enneagram Sevens, this, you're five. We're about to get into that. And this is not a podcast about Sevens or about me or Luke. So, <laughs> however, <laughs> the, the but, five and the two here are noting who we're talking about. <laughs> I wonder, because you're talking about, you know, what pulls the feelings out of Luke? You know, I'm thinking what pulls the feelings out of me? And it's not Suzanne. Mm. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, that could be because Suzanne is your mother. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I bet Luke would be like, man, she's she's a secondary or tertiary. Yeah. Is that the number yeah. for three? Uh, yeah. But like it for me, I think it's the kids pull out my feelings, mm-hmm. and I wonder if that's like just something for for sevens to think about as they're on this journey. What what brings up the feelings for you and in your life? Not go find. I've I've said I'm not going to the the cancer ward. Right. Like I know that's mm-hmm. something that could be great, mm-hmm. but I I don't I'm not at that space yet. However, mm-hmm. the children bring out the feelings for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And if it's the, you know, Suzanne and whoever else for Luke, all you Enneagram 7s out there, what brings up the feelings and uh, that you're comfortable with and love? Yeah. And do that. Go be around those people more than you are. I yeah. like that. That's now good. I'm done. I like it too. It has a lot to do with who are you willing to be vulnerable with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Jason, we've we've missed something in not knowing you, and we're very clear about that. So... <laughs> I don't know how it took us so long, but tell us about you. Yeah, so um, where to start? I'm a pastor. I'm in South Bend, Indiana. Um, I've been doing this work my entire adult life. 
uh, for the last seven years or so. I've had the privilege of leading a, a community that we, we, we got started seven years ago called South Bend City Church. Uh, we're right in the heart of South Bend, which is a really beautiful and complex city with um, a lot of stories to tell, and we get to be part of those now. Um, there's a tension with church planters where you don't want your church to be about you, but it can't help but be a little bit autobiographical. And I think I was somebody who was longing for a place to practice my faith that was simultaneously like more historically grounded and more open and interested in what's happening in the world right now. And so we try to do that. Uh, we call ourselves liturgically promiscuous. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah, we want to, there's just so many beautiful, rich things in um, what John Philip Newell calls the Christian household. And it's a big house, you know, and we don't want to live in one room of it. And so we're trying to do that together here. You talk about, I think two words that don't get used anymore, allow, and mm -hmm. satisfied, but mm -hmm. I think in this situation, allow people don't use the word promiscuous in a positive light. <laughs> no, they don't. And, I, and it needs to be. I want yeah, to. I I'm going to start throwing it around. Do it. I yeah. can't wait to talk to Joe about promiscuous liturgy. I can't wait. <laughs> he may be calling you, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> We're happy to help. People are all going to think it's help. about. Um, and I'm about to show how little i know about the bible mary magdalene they're like oh yeah, so it's sure. a series on mary magdalene yeah i was like no no it's not <laughs> yeah, that's yeah that's the right. magic that'll be this. the only place their imagination goes yeah to. that's right which is so sad isn't that sad well y'all are both making fun of me right now so yes oh. that's where my head went and <laughs> okay it is sad and oh, no 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 are. i'm saying well you and everybody i'm yeah. just saying and, and that's an inaccurate understanding of Mary Magdalene too. So it's mm -hmm, it's like mm -hmm. that's messy but that's in all what, the way. That's exactly, what people say. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is what they say. Yeah, that's like a sacred promiscuity, holy <laughs> promiscuity, something like that. Oh man. Oh, there's a lot to work. All with right. There. We'll, yeah, we'll get a what a brain trust going here about this. I'm in. You know the the fact that I was so promiscuous, according to lots of just. Catholic folks, okay. I ended oh. up uh, getting the opportunity to wear the big scarlet A because Father Stabile left the priesthood. And, you know, I wasn't promiscuous, and nor was I the reason. But they, people pick whatever thing they can pick to mm -hmm. say, that's promiscuity, it's bad, and it's over there. Mm -hmm. That leads yeah, to a question that I didn't, that's popping up in my head right now. So in the past month, you're the second uh, church planner that we've interviewed. Oh, wow. Do people but, but. Try, try to find the thing? You know, if it's not promiscuity, do people try to find that? And you said, but, I'm sorry. Well, I just want to say, my if we could back up, which we can't do seamlessly, but I think it's fascinating that a five is a church planter. Oh. That in itself is a thing so I, I just want to put that in the conversation right now and then we can keep going where where you were headed let's go with both of those let's talk about you can answer all those questions okay right here right <laughs> yeah here um joel say a little more about your question suzanne i hear yours loud and clear because that resonates with me sure. all right so i had a and this is probably more about my personality my question i think it was this morning or last night with whitney like whitney as a one and this makes no sense to me like just believes people are doing the right thing like she has a lot of faith and in mm -hmm. humanity and people and whatever 
I don't. I'm like, I assume people have an agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a one. I'm a seven. I didn't. That didn't click for me that she doesn't see the world that way until we. Uh, th- I don't remember if it was last night or this morning, but it didn't click for me until she said that, and I immediately made registered a note. I was like, oh my gosh, I. I didn't know that we did not see the world the same way. I know, uh, I know we don't see the world the same way in a million ways, but around this, I thought we both thought kind of the world is, you know, <laughs> so with that suspect being, at best, exactly. Yeah. And so, so that was when we're talking about promiscuity and like I said, first thing that I Mary Magdalene, mm-hmm. nothing else, all the great things yeah, that she yeah, did yeah, yeah. and the lives of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, she's a whore. Yeah. <laughs> so my question was, as a church planner, yeah, like, are people looking for that kind of stuff? And Suzanne's uh, question was, yeah. not for that specific, but what is the Achilles heel? Mm-hmm. And Suzanne's yeah. question was, uh, oh, my gosh, you're an Anagram 5 church planner. So yeah, I've talked way so too I, long. No, I think that they might even connect as I think about them. Um I'll say, like, I think a lot of people don't know what to make of South and City Church because we don't fit one particular um, mold very easily. And even church planting in the West, I think, one of the things I think is kind of sad about it is it's become pretty um, uniform. I think a lot of what's happening looks the same when I look at it in different places. And it's not, I'm not saying it's intrinsically bad, but it seems um, kind of boring. And, um, <laughs> There's like a, there's a playbook that they that, that you're run in church planting. We 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 haven't really done a lot of that, and so I think um, there's probably a connection there. I, I'm probably not the typical profile. I even know when people like try to get an organization to fund a church plant. Some of the big national organizations that fund it, I don't think I would ever pass the test to get funded by them for a bunch of reasons because they have kind of a profile they're looking for. And having had friends go through that process, I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm not that. Um, I don't fit that profile. Mm-hmm. Which brings us back to a church that I think doesn't fit a profile that a lot of people are looking for. Um, we, we've also taken some stances or adopted some behaviors as a community that kind of put us outside the fold of um, conservative evangelical that um, there's been some pain and some hardship along that way. That's, but, but the thing about that is when they throw stones at us for that, they're, they're not wrong. They're like, it, we, we more take heat for things that are true of us, I think, than things that are um, misconstrued about us. So. Yeah. It's easier, yeah. isn't it? That's literally what I was going to say. Yeah. It's easier to take heat for doing the right thing. Yeah. Being misunderstood really hurts. Yeah. At well, another level, I think. Yeah. And I think too often being misunderstood is the result of a lack of curiosity in other people. Yes. A, a lack of curiosity everywhere. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by how uncurious is uncurious a word. It is. Well, we're all right. So when we're recording this right now, we have not released an episode. Do you, um, Mallory? Mallory. Mallory. Oh, Wyckoff? Yes. yes. I do know Mallory. Yeah, she's preached at our church. Big okay. Fan of Mallory. Yeah. All right. So we recently recorded a conversation with her that hasn't released, and we talked about curiosity. Yep. And the the whole lack of curiosity that people have yes. today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a part of that, and then maybe you and I, Jason, I really want you to start talking and just don't let us interrupt you. But (laughs) (laughs) I think the lack of curiosity, and this is from a 73 year old woman. So y'all may need to fix this is the result of having things you get curious about and you just Google it and then you have an answer and you Google it and then you have an answer. 
And I think it keeps people from looking for answers. I think people who have a little moment of curiosity about something think, oh, I'll have to Google that later. Instead of asking a question or saying, tell me why you do it this way or what's different about your church. People, I believe most people, rather than saying to Jason, tell me about your church and tell me what's different, would go Google about the church. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah, see how many people like it, and, well, and, I, and yeah, and I think there's 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 two compounding problems there that I know of. One is um, Google's never going to say that's not a good question. Let me help you with a better question. And two, um, my understanding right is that we all think that when we go on Google, it's giving us access to the whole universe of information, and what we're learning is that algorithmically, Google's not designed to expose you to everything. It's designed to expose you to the things that will keep you clicking, which means you actually, your role gets smaller and smaller and smaller right. because it dials in a more and more precise picture of what you want to hear, which is the opposite of curiosity. But you think it's, it's honoring your curiosity while all the while it's just collapsing your world. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's that all of that feels really true to me, both in like our experience as a church and just in the world at large and trying to pastor in the world that we're living in right now, trying to help people, become more curious about their neighbors and become more curious about people with different experiences than themselves. Um, that's, that's really hard to do right now. So tell us about your church. So we're called South and city church. Uh, we have an identity statement. Good. Uh, we, uh, we call her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We call ourselves a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. Um, every bit of that's aspirational, but every bit of it matters. Uh, a community like we're quite literally called to be with one another grace and peace we get those words from the new testament right and for us they they have a lot of depth in them Um, sometimes when grace and peace are too easy we say generosity and justice uh, because we want to both like live in the flow of generosity that you know god is just outright generous toward us and we have nothing to prove with god and therefore we're going to be generous with each other and we have nothing to prove with each other we're going to live in that but simultaneously and maybe paradoxically you know god cares about the world that we build and the relationships between us and um, justice matters and we want to work that out together and we want to do that um, both for the city of South Bend um, I mentioned South Bend's a beautiful and complex place um, I don't know how to talk about our church without talking about our city yeah. so you know South Bend in some ways is kind of a classic Midwest um, Rust Belt town you could say uh, Notre Dame is next door to South Bend but in a lot of ways um, that are problematic Notre Dame and South Bend are two coexisting realities side by side and there's a little bit of movement in a better direction there but for like a long long time. Notre Dame and South Bend have coexisted rather than being in relationship. So South Bend, um, manufacturing town, uh, Studebaker cars. You ever hear of a Studebaker? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. They were all made right here in South Bend. Wow. Um, well, at least the comp- the company started here and, the, and their primary manufacturing was here. Also, people don't know Studebaker cars. They might know the Bud's wi- Budweiser Clydesdales and that big red, yeah. big red wagon they pull. Yeah. Uh, that ra- wagon was made right here in South Bend because it was Studebaker wagons before it was Studebaker cars. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and up until the early 1960s, Studebaker was the largest employer by far. And then like quite literally overnight, uh, they went out of business. I mean, like there's a story told that on the day that they announced they were closing, a reporter was at the administrative offices in downtown South Bend, heard the news, ran seven blocks south to the manufacturing operation and asked a factory worker who was leaving the line that day, what do you think about the news that your employer just went out of business? And, and the factory worker said, what are you talking about? Studebaker will never go out of business. I mean, that was the level of unexpectedness for it. Wow. Um, and so in a city of 100,000 people, I think something like 30,000 people lost their jobs in one day. 
both from the factory and then the other you know companies that supported it. Um, so the 60s, 70s, and 80s and 90s are challenging around here. In 2011, Newsweek magazine called South Bend the ninth most dying city in America, which I don't think was true, but man, it riled us up, you know. And there was enough that was true that they were able to say that. But in the meantime, I've found South Bend to be a place of really rich diversity. Uh, it's 40% non-white. It's a place with like really, really beautiful streams all converging. It's a small enough city that we can all get to know each other, but a big enough city that there's a lot going on here that's interesting. And, um, and then a lot of people got to know South Bend for the first time when our mayor, Pete Buttigieg, ran for president mm -hmm. in a kind of uh, unexpected run uh, a few years ago. And now he's the secretary of transportation. But uh, Pete was a really good sort of champion for the city and um, I think helped a lot of us um, take even more seriously what we're a part of here in South Bend. Um, I'm, I'm a person who like had the benefit of being raised in kind of small churches of Christ, Christian churches, rural congregations, uh, communities where I was loved really well and had a really beautiful picture of God. Um, and then spent 13 years working at a big old mega church where I got a different vision of church. And in the meantime, was on a theological journey that didn't fit either of those spaces, but I couldn't figure out what to do with it. Um, and then I had the benefit of doing my graduate degree at Notre Dame in theology, and, and that just exposed me to this other whole part of the household, right? Um, not just Catholic, but just really wide Christianity. And doing my work there um, helped me come back to a faith that I, I was probably deconstructing and wrestling with, but I had the benefit of graduate school and like great mentors. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being really frustrated that a lot of my friends, they, they no longer found room inside the faith they had for their own life and experience. And I was the one saying like, no, but the thing is the faith that you have isn't, that's just a, a small little part of what we call Christian faith. And I wish you knew there was more to it and there were broader streams. But then I looked at like the church spaces that we were creating and I'm like, well, how would they know that? But like, I got to go to grad school and most people won't and probably shouldn't. Um, and so I hope church can be a place where you get exposed to all these different streams that make room for doubt and faith and wrestling. Uh, sometimes we call South Bend City Church um, a great, it's like South and City Church, a great place to lose your faith. And we're kind of <laughs> joking, um, but we mean that in two ways. One, I'm not actually rooting for you to lose your faith unless your faith um, is harmful, right? If there's things about your faith that need to be left behind, if, if your version of faith has become a mascot or a, a covering for something that's, that's not good in the world, um, whether it's misogynistic or racist or unjust, if your faith is making you a smaller person rather than a bigger person, I am rooting for you to leave that version of faith behind. Uh, and the other reason that we say that is we just know that like in the modern world, a lot of us are going to go through seasons of unbelief and belief. And um, for church to be a community that you lose on the same day that you lose your faith seems really sadistic to me. Because to lose your faith is traumatic enough. And then to lose your community on the same day that that happens just seems impossibly rough to me um, and I think we're better off for the fact that we have a few um, you know we have atheists and doubters and unbelievers all in the mix and I think we're a, a better community as we try to make room for each other even as we follow Jesus and um, and work it out an Enneagram question for the two of you as I heard you talk and as we mentioned the word curiosity earlier you know so the little cliche name for anagram fives is the observer mm -hmm. it seems like fives are the perfect people to be curious suzanne you talk about at different times in history or in society we need different things from different numbers to step up or different numbers to step up because of 
the gifts that they have on board. And so my question is for Suzanne is now like, do we need fives to step up? Because our one, our fives like very, very good at being curious because for me, for me as a seven, I'm not, when I'm curious, I, I observe. And I think that's that line to five. Like when I'm at church and I have questions, like I see somebody do something, I'm like, let's see how this plays out. I think I like to don't, I don't jump quite to a, a conclusion, but let's, let's, uh, let's yeah. see where this goes. I'm curious about that. Whereas on the other end of it, which could be not to take a shot at once, you know, there are times that I'm like, I just need an answer here. I need the right answer. Yeah. And I jump to Google. I think so. I, one of the things I say, Jason, when I'm teaching about fives is I think if you had access, you meaning anyone had access to the information about the people who have patents in Washington, D.C. for things that they created. I believe that we would find that a high percentage of those people, if we had a way to measure it, are fives on the Enneagram. And it's because fives are not only curious, but they're curious about how to create a solution. Mm-hmm. And so if we talk about what everything Jason said so far. That's what I was saying, yeah. Is about, I was, I was curious. I had the fortune of going to Notre Dame to get a master's degree in theology where there are broad thinkers. And I'm, I'm planting a place for curiosity and solutions and inventions that might come from that curiosity. Yeah, that, that resonates with me a lot. I think um, the upside, right, is curiosity, where I think we, we're not, let me take one step back. I, I was talking to somebody else who was getting ready to plant a church, and I knew that they were coming, I knew the setting they were coming from before that. And I was so excited for them. I'm like, man, you have a chance to rethink everything. And then the more we talked, the more I realized they, they weren't planning on doing any of that. They, they were going to, they, they didn't like leave that room in the middle where t- before you jump, you think, right. and you explore. And I was kind of sad. We talked about, I'm like, man, I, I think you're missing the entire opportunity here, which is like put everything back on the table, bring new data in and, and then create something new rather than just a slightly more modernized version of the same thing you've been a part of. Right. Um, I think the, the downside with fives or one of them, one of the things that makes our church work, I mean, our whole team makes our church work. But in particular, um, I have a really, really great partner in our executive pastor, and he's an eight with a nine wing. And um, so I have, you know, I might have all these ideas, but um, the execution, the, the kind of proactive stance that it takes to see them through to completion, most of my ideas wouldn't go very far without a partner who thinks then about, you know, how do we get that thing from 30,000 feet to the ground floor and turn it into, you know, something real. Um, so I, I think it's really important that like somebody like me has enough awareness to figure out what kind of partners I need. I suspect maybe one reason we don't have a lot of people with my disposition in my seat in like modern churches is, um, if you expect the person in my seat to, to lead the execution as well, it may not go very well, you know? Um, so yeah, I really, really value the, the partnership that we have between curiosity. And he's also like a super curious person. It's not that he's not doing that too. But um, it takes it takes a couple of us to make this work. The teamwork of thinking and doing, right? Totally. You know, you know, how about we think before we leap? And, yeah. Yeah. and, and somebody like, else is like, "Hey, Jay, at some point, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah." Our our joke is like, 
I actually joke with some friends who are sevens and Suzanne and Angel, you can tell me if this is fair or not. <laughs> but if, if they're if they're if their thing is like ready, fire, aim, I sometimes I feel that like my I'm like ready, aim, 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 yes. aim, aim. And somebody's like fire, man, you know? Yeah. 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 Um okay. I like I have a page full of questions here and uh a couple of things to say. One of the things I want to say is that I'm so excited anytime I hear somebody like you who has started a church that you're excited about that is uniquely creating as you go along if i hear it correctly in response to your curiosity about the world and the world around you and your life inside of your own heart and soul is that correct yeah that's i sure feel that and i think defensive people cannot be curious if people leave the way we always did it, how can you suggest that there's a better way than this 150-year tradition? Then the people who are saying, we need to do something different, get defensive. And that's exhausting. From curiosity to defensive is backwards. Mm. And we need to create space where you can go from curiosity to creating. And it sounds like you're doing that. So I yes. want to, I want to carefully, I need to do this very carefully. It is disturbing to me that what is considered to be a contemporary worship service is in many instances, a relaxed worship service with new music. Hmm. And I understand why that is offered. I understand why it's appreciated and attended. I understand that it's a step toward the things that I would love to see happen in the church. But the old guard tends to create an arena where one has to defend the contemporary service as it is, so you can't move it any farther. Hmm. And I'd like for you to speak to that. And I'd like to know the average age of the people in your church. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying anything bad about contemporary worship. I think that's a move forward. Mm-hmm. I would like for the the uh, tradition to support the move without there being a need to defend the direction. Hmm. I have... So many thoughts. I'll try to figure out where to start. Um, I resonate with what you're saying, Suzanne. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of work here only because the 13 years that I've spent in megachurch world were at a, a, a church whose, whose methods were like hyper modern. Um, you wouldn't, it wouldn't fit the description that you just offered. And almost my entire ministry career, I've not personally been bumping into the thing that you're describing that I know happens in a lot of places. But what all what stands out to me as you talk about that is um, I think in like typically sort of conservative church spaces um, for so long, it's been said like the message never changes. The method does. And essentially what we've said then is you can't go upstream and actually have any new thoughts about the theology that's motivating all this or compelling this. You can only tinker downstream, but at some point there's only so much that you can, do different or interesting downstream if you don't do harder work upstream 
and I'm not arguing necessarily for like new theology. If people actually know everything I think and believe about God, the vast, vast majority of it, it's actually just older than evangelical theology. It's not newer than evangelical theology, it go, but it sounds progressive because a lot of us have only heard about the last 500 years of teaching, not the last 2000 years. But back to what I'm, I'm wrestling with here as you talk about it, I think. Um, Before you go back, Jason, so, let me tell yeah. you a story. And, yep. and and don't don't lose what you were going to say, please. I got it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe was sitting in my Sunday school class that I was teaching about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And a woman in the room was arguing with the theology behind what I was saying. And Joe ended up in a conversation with her. And, you know, he's a former Roman Catholic priest, mm-hmm. went to seminary at 14 with the Vincentian fathers till he was 40. Mm-hmm. phenomenal education. He found out in that conversation with her that she went to seminary uh, at a seminary here in Dallas, hmm. and they only teach the last 500 years of church history. That's it, yeah. I thought Joe yeah. was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> I bet. I, I, I bet. Literally. He, yeah. he still talks about it and gets whipped up, and he didn't get whipped up about much. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I want listeners to think about how far back that's right their opportunities for education and preaching have and yeah how how does it go back two thousand years or 500 yeah yeah i and i think um sometimes i think you know about the irony that uh, a modern preacher would think that like somehow their interpretation of a text is more authoritative and more reliable than say like Gregory of Nyssa or Irenaeus or Athanasius. Like, I'm like, I'm not saying those guys are infallible, but they they get to be at the table too, right? Right. Like at least at a minimum, they get to be at the table too, right? Um, especially because one of the blind spots and prejudices that shapes all of us, not one, a whole set, are the ones intrinsic to our era, right? Any era, I don't care who you are, if you're in an era, you've, you've inherited some of the blind spots and biases of, of your era. And one way to get outside that is to, you know, we, we don't get to go forward, but we can go past. Um, and I think, you know, maybe um, I, th- I suspect there's probably an era earlier where somebody like a Enneagram five type would be the natural fit for pastoring. Um, mm-hmm. But in the modern era of like um, leadership coaching, which I'm all for, I, I'm so grateful that I spent 13 years. I actually think like Enneagram fives need to go work at mega churches to learn how to like get outside your head and do stuff and create stuff and Ah, make things happen. Yeah. But for me, that was a Garakantra. That was acting against my type. And that I think set me up to do this a little bit better. But I think, um, I think we need more pastors right now who know how to go upstream and do actual theological work, um, and have a big brave conversation where you're not trying to defend the party line, but you're open. And then, and then from that, we could ask, well, then what could church look like? Um, downstream from all that work that that's where I think so I'm not people want to talk about church methods and strategies and I'm all for that but I'm, I'm more interested in like can we go upstream and talk about where's all this coming from in the first place and then I, I actually think new ideas are going to flow pretty naturally you don't have to work so hard sometimes I'm in a church but you can feel like they're trying really hard to be innovative and I'm in this season of my life it kind of bums me out and I'm like I can kind of feel it it feels maybe like you're forcing it. And I'm like, man, you, you could just go upstream, um, do the work, and then just watch what happens, you know? The phrase you said a second ago, uh, you know, about 
being a five and going to the mega church and doing that work. Yeah. And I think he said, uh, working against your type. Uh, I shared it with my group recently or one of, one of the new groups recently. You said recently, Suzanne, someone asked questions like, what does the work mean? What, you know, when you say mm-hmm. doing the work, what does the work mean? Yeah. And your response was, it's not the work if there's not vulnerability. Uh-huh. And I think that's what you, that's what I hear you saying. Yes. Yeah, that's I gold. It. I love it too. One of the things that I've heard you say that you, Suzanne, don't trust. If they hand you the laminated, here's the 10 way, here's okay. the, here's the, the bullet points. Answers to everything. The answers to, to get everything. You there. Yes. Yeah. That yep. You don't trust that. Yes. And you, Jason, are saying the opposite of that. And I love yes. that. Well, and we live in a culture that uh, creates fear everywhere, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which explains why people are looking for the answers. That's Give right. me the answers. Right. Instead yep. of saying, come join us. We're looking for the answers too, but yeah. we're doing it in community. Yeah, kind of unintentionally. I, I find myself more often now in, in church spaces that you would probably describe as progressive, which I, I have no interest in these labels and, and binaries, but that's just a kind of a fact. And um, I think one of my frustrations there is at the risk of painting in broad stroke, I think in, in a world with lots of tumult, lots of change, lots of people kind of not knowing north and south now and feeling like they're kind of confused, um, I think if if some places sort of um become like too dogmatic looking backward other places have become too dogmatic looking forward and i think um like really good pastoring right now i think demands that we we hold a fairly complex space together you know it means i think on the one hand like having some convictions but on the other hand leaving room for a lot of exploration i think it means trusting people to do their own work um you know i'm like that's huge for a pastor right i also think um, it's pastorally sensitive to make sure people know there are a few things that we hold to. There's a center in this community, mm-hmm. a, a conviction in this community, even as we do all this exploration, even as we ask all these big questions. And I think the art of kind of holding those two things at, at once, that that feels like so much of the discernment practice of our community right now is knowing kind of how to emphasize and, and where to push um, and when to really drive the point that this is open and when to really drive the point that we have some convictions here that center this community and from which we we explore, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I love that part of the work. It seems like the part of the work I don't hear many people talking about. Right. It's all it's either all like the banner for like prog- progressive stances and causes or right. the doubling down and the conservative stances or causes, or it's, you know, 18 doctrinal points and here's what we believe, or it's, uh, we don't know anything, we don't believe anything. And I'm like, no, th- there's gotta be something more interesting than any of those like really one dimensional spaces, I think. But it's a lot harder. I mean, it's certainly like uh, more complex work, you know? Well, it's also yeah, way more interesting. It is, and you have to measure success, whatever that is, yes. on something other than numbers. That's right, that's right. And yeah. churches are really struggling. Yeah, yeah when they have to measure what's happening, not based on how many people are in the room or yes. in all those things that are traditionally what defines a successful church. Yeah, actually, I kind of hope that um, the COVID disruption, that one of the gifts is that it's kind of, it's disabusing us Yes. of, of, of those kind of number-driven myths. Because like, I don't know, I don't know hardly any church right now that feels great about their attendance numbers. Right. And I hope we say, cool, maybe maybe the invitation right now is to leave some of that behind. Do you think that liturgy and liturgical worship can be your 
life vest swimming upstream. Mm. Oh, I think I like this. Can you say a little more? I think I, I think I hear what you're saying. Well, if you're gonna be vulnerable enough mm-hmm. to go back and see, you know, like when when I teach on college campuses, some usually males come up to me and say, "Would you die for your faith?" Oh. What was worth being burned at the stake for? Hmm. Why were people willing to leave everything behind and go follow Jesus? What was happening in all that time? I think if you're going to follow where curiosity will lead you, you have to have liturgy that grounds you. I, yeah, that's okay. what I'm trying I th- to say. I thought that's where you're going, and I, yeah. I really resonate. And I think um, if your entire worship service is three songs and a 40-minute sermon— mm-hmm then essentially the center of your practice is usually a guy with a bunch of opinions and ideas. Right. And if that's the center of your practice, then the thing that allows your community to cohere is whether or not you agree with the guy and his opinions, right? Right. But I think if the center of your practice, for example, is the Eucharist, right? Yeah. Um, as one example, um, or what is it that, that allows you to be bound to one another? Well, we're the community that prays together. That's different than we're the community that hears a sermon together. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I totally resonates so deeply with that, that the, what is it that binds us then? It's like, well, we're the community that comes to the table together. That's and, right. and That's radical and beautiful. And then me, in the meantime, yeah, Jay said some things and we're wrestling with it. Mm-hmm. We don't know what we think about it, but mm-hmm. man, we, we, we came to Jesus's table, for example. Totally agree. One of the things in the Catholic liturgy, I think it's number three, but I'm, it's been a while, is um, as part of the liturgy that leads into receiving the Eucharist, there is a place where you say, um, I'm not worthy to receive, but then there's a but. And I can't remember the exact formula and the exact words, but essentially it's, I'm not worthy to receive, but my participation in this makes me worthy. I love that. I love that. I do too. And I... I spent 10 years in the Catholic Church, and I'm married to a former Catholic priest, and Eucharist is life-giving every single time for every single person. And that gives you the courage to be curious, because you know you get to come back to that. I think there's a, and I want you to argue with me about this, both of you, if you don't agree. I think there's a place where you've got to be grounded because if not, then you find yourself trying to please every person who comes to say what they want. Yes. And we lost, we lost the church by trying to please everybody. Yes. And I can't tell you how many young people have said to me, you know, we visited a lot of churches. We have a three-year-old and a five-year-old and people pounced on us mm-hmm. to try to get us to come back and join Sunday school. And what can we do for you? And here's the gift we have for you. And we can't be doing that. We have to set the yeah. table for people to come, which sounds like what you're doing with an awareness yeah. of the people who are around you. Yeah. Yes. I, I feel so strongly that, um, and, and I don't mean to center myself too much in this, but I, I have this you know, particular responsibility as our lead pastor. And I, I just think um, th- there has to be a kind of non-anxious conviction at the center of what we're doing. 
Um, and conviction doesn't mean dogmatic and militant, and it doesn't mean that we know everything, but there have to be some things that we just, that we live from. And then I think, you know, a lot of us carry this responsibility, but I often think it's like, frankly, almost everything we do, there's somebody else on the team who's better at it than I am. But one of the things I can do for us, and, and, if I, and if I don't do it, I don't know if it matters if anybody else does it, is to have a kind of non-anxious belief in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's an anxiety at the, at the center of it, mm -hmm. that's gonna show. And if there's a non-anxious conviction at the center of it, that's just energetically different. And I think even people who wouldn't know what they were feeling will feel that. Mm -hmm. They may not have to be able to name it, but I think that's really important. One of the things I wrote down was the difference in honoring integrity and dogma. Mm. And there's a point where if you can leave the dogmatic stuff to the side beyond the core belief, mm -hmm. then people get to make choices based on the integrity that they have and the maturing of that integrity as mm. they participate in a church community. Mm -hmm. It must be that time of the season for me that I keep going back to the four mantras. <clears throat> uh -huh. But, you know, it's not show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and grow numbers. Yeah. Show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and get a younger uh, average age. Right. Oh. You know, it, it's not these things. And LTMs, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I won't say LTM. I, Joel, who work for LTM, I'm guilty of like, how many people have registered for this event? Right. Oh, well, are we doing the right event? That's not what's important. Like, do you, are you doing what is LTM doing what LTM feels called to do? Right. And then whether it's 10 people or a thousand people that sign up, that doesn't matter. That's right. When you're a church planner, that, uh, I imagine that's a little utopian. It's like, yeah, that'd be nice. Well, and well, guess what? Nice. There's bills. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's real. I mean, we had to, it was brutal. We had to cut two staff positions a, a year ago because our budget couldn't sustain the staff we had. It's brutal. It's awful. Um, we have a lease commitment. We just signed a mortgage. Yeah, there's all these things, right? What I was going to say was, um, inevitably, there will be pressures like on numbers and finances. And frankly, like it feels good when there's more people coming. That's exciting, right? My, my feeling is not so much to um, pretend to be immune to those things or to try to cut them out entirely. My, my feeling is that there just has to be a, a something, something deeper at the center and I think there can still be room for all that, right? It's like you have a conviction and you try to embody it. And then you're like, does this connect with anyone? And if it doesn't connect with anyone, it's like, well, do something different, right? Like, I think there's room for that. But I just think, um, but if I'm not cultivating personally, and if we as a community aren't are cultivating a, something more central and deeper than that, then that's it, almost like a vacuum, right? And then that stuff's going to fill the vacuum. But we've, we've got to have some convictions that aren't just numbers and growth. And then we can hope, I think it's fine to hope for those things. We, we have a rule at South and City, actually. It, it's actually kind of a rule. And we, we never have, and I, I think never will, have a meeting where we ask how to grow attendance. That's one question we don't ask in meetings. It doesn't mean I don't get excited when I see the numbers growing. Sure, right? sure. Of course it's fun, right? And I, and I don't feel bad about that. Um, I just don't want to live from that, you know. Or make decisions based on that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. We just had a... Uh, previously a dynamite conversation uh, and the gentleman is an anagram one and I'm a seven hmm. and we talked about that one seven line yeah. we talked earlier uh, you're good friends with Luke he's yeah. a seven you're a five and y'all share a line we do can you talk 
from that five angle. So then you talk about that the stress and security moves for five for you, in your opinion, is just like mind. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. That and, you have seven and eight to choose from. Yeah. And if the two of y'all could kind of talk to that some for, for, the next, yeah. for the next few minutes. I mean, to start, I'll just say what I often say to Luke, which is I'm you at your best and you're me at my worst. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there you go. I don't, I don't really mean that. I know that's not how this really yeah. goes, but I kind, of, I kind of do feel it. Well, you can um, say the same thing to Joel. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. that's not, <laughs> Joel, I can take I, that. I'm you at your best. You're me at my worst, man. Um, uh, I, I'm actually really curious to have this conversation with you, Suzanne, because um, this is a part of Enneagram I've, I've heard a lot about, but I still put my handles on it. I'll just observe for you. I don't know what this tells you. Um, friends are really big for me. Like I'm not married. I'm 40. My friends are my family. And like, like three of my closest friends in the world, like my, like Luke's one of them, like they're all sevens, uh, like almost my entire inner circle of deepest trust, joy, connection is, is seven. So I don't know even what that sounds like to you. Um, but Suzanne, can you talk to us about this? Cause this is an area of the Enneagram that I'm familiar with, but I, I, I feel like there's a lot of stereotypes of what it means. These, these arrows, and I'm not sure they're all true. I don't think all the stereotypes are true. And I do think the access to seven for fives and to five for sevens is essential. Hmm. And the reason is fives can spend their entire lives stretching their thinking without including feeling and doing. Yes. And the line to seven changes that. It's not an option when you're on that line between you and seven to mm -hmm. not feel and do. Mm -hmm. And sevens are feeling repressed. So I'm not saying you're feeling the right stuff. <laughs> you're feeling better, though. <laughs> it's, it's like a what's what's a drug that yeah, makes you yeah. morphine. It's morphine. <laughs> yeah. No pain here. You're feeling better. <laughs> What, what does it mean? Help, can you help me a bit with like the, the stress and integration distinction? Yeah. Because um, I, I can tell how I move toward both of those. I don't know that I have a nuanced sense of the difference between my movement towards seven and eight. They're both like, you know, aggressive stances, I think, right? Versus my withdrawing stance. Yeah. Um, you know, I, um, and, then I, and then there's that relational thing, which maybe I like having seven friends because then I move towards seven with them. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but the difference between the, the stress movement and the integration movement. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have several things to say. First of all, let's think about the fact that fives actually really struggle to have enough energy. Yes. Well, you get energy from sevens, period. That's, all I know that's going is, on. That's right. That's all you have to do is be close yeah. and you get to have some of their energy. The second thing I would say is that I teach this this way. You cannot take your care of yourself without the number that you go to in stress. Hmm. And you cannot experience holistic healing without the number that you go to in security. Oh, can you say that again? Sure. You can't take care of yourself without the number that you go to in stress. Mm -hmm. And you can't experience holistic healing without the number that you go to in security. Yeah. It's as you, it's actually, as you say that I almost kind of like feel that like, at a, a, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's the... That really tracks for me. Good. And, and then what happens with you in sevens is that when you're anxious, 
when you are uh, kind of off. Sevens can ground you because they keep you from taking yourself too seriously. Yep. And because at the same time, they're thinking dominant mm-hmm. and they can think with you. Yeah. Uh, that makes so much sense to me. Like I, I wouldn't be able to make you feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm thinking repressed. Yeah. And feelings for fives are difficult for them to share, but they are aware when there's a disconnect between them and other people because fives seem to at times be socially awkward. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the move to seven handles that too. Yeah. And when you feel socially awkward, you go to seven. Yeah. Because you, right? It's because it's stressful. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All that makes sense to me. Um, But both in my own movement towards seven and then my relationships with sevens, all that really resonates. Um, I just, I just did this like five week book tour and we were on the road almost all of five weeks and I had these two friends come with me. And uh, one of them is one of these close friends who's a seven and he volunteered to come, but I was like, this is perfect. Cause I, like I need, I, I felt it. I was like, I think I, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm doing five weeks of international, national travel right. events, strangers in every city. They want to do meals after church, all this stuff. And just knowing that, um, like you said, we, we have this bond that feels really safe. We both think, um, I don't feel like I have to explain myself to him cause he gets what I'm thinking about, but the levity, the keeping me from getting like drawn too far down into withdrawal, all of that is like such a huge gift. Well, and just talking to the people across the table from you at the church dinner so that you don't have to. Oh no, that's quite clear in my mind. Literally I'm bringing you with me cause there's going to be a point in the meal where I'm just going to shut up and let you go. And that's that's right. going to be really great for me. Yeah. Right. Cause yeah. I can't do it. Fives yeah. can't yeah. keep up. So yeah. have, have you ever seen or heard me talk about five energy? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, you wake up in the morning every morning with the same amount, mm-hmm. the exact same amount of energy and you can't store up for the next day. So you, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to store up extra energy for the tour because it's like yes. manna. You get what you need yeah. every day and that's all you get. And every single encounter you have mm-hmm. costs you energy. And intuitively, mm-hmm. fives want to get home or to where <laughs> yeah. their safe place before yeah. they run out of energy because they're good thinkers and people can't read them and mm-hmm. know when to stop needing mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. from them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not easy to read. And so people just keep on wanting more from the way you think and the other thing is that fives are the only number on the enneagram that is capable of true neutrality Hmm. it's interesting to hear you talk because you're neutral about many things and you're grounded Hmm. but being grounded doesn't mean that when you're presented with something from other people that you're not capable of taking a neutral stand. Hmm. And in our dualistic culture, mm-hmm. a neutral stand is not appreciated. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that very much. Yeah. And so you don't get I, strokes for it. Yeah, I, even in my job, I'm, I'm struck more and more and more. I learn so many people th- think that my job is to become 
you know, the mascot for their worldview or their point of view or whatever, whatever pet issue they have or whatever. And when I resist that, sometimes you find out the hard way just how much you're defying the category that they had for you as a pastor. Right. You know? right. Yeah. Average age in your church? Like, statistically, I don't quite know. I mean, we're actually more age diverse than people think we would be. People I'm usually walk so in. I'm so glad. I want yeah. that to be the answer more yeah. than I can tell you. Oh, man. I, I'll t here's part of my. Here's what I observe. Um, we have a ton of, you know, 20 somethings and 30 somethings. They would fit the expectation, right? Um, I had a friend of mine who visited for the first time who said, I just thought the entire church would just be a bunch of like geriatric millennial hipsters drinking bourbon and listening to Bon Iver, <laughs> which is just him describing me, you know? And um, it meant a lot to me that that's not what he found. Um, but here's what I was going to say is um, we have a, a, a pretty large segment of people my parents age and older who I think they're drawn to SBCC not because they're necessarily going through the angsty part of like deconstruction and reconstruction right. they've done all that work I think and they're just I think happy to be a part of a community that has room for all of that can I tell you about my favorite member of our church I'm a, I have a favorite member of course you can uh, her name's her name is Barbara and she's 86 years old yep. and she was a pastor here in South Bend in the 70s and 80s well she moved around the last church that she pastored before she retired was here in south bend but she was a lead pastor in the 70s 80s and 90s uh, in the unity churches which i'd never heard of before but like she and her cohort were reading richard Rohr before it was cool you know yeah. what i mean like yeah in the 80s they were reading them in real time and she comes and the first time i ever met her she attended a service and i was in the middle of my preaching and i looked down and this woman is just like beaming with enthusiasm and it, like I could, it was like I could, I could feel her like cheering me on. And she comes up to me afterwards. Um, we never met before. She says, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. And she says, um, my name is Barbara. You know, I pastored for many years. And she said, I think I know what you're doing. And I was like, what do you think you're doing? And then she read me like a book. And it was beautiful. And it was, I'm not sure everybody here gets it. But I sense that this church is helping people expand. I, like she said, I, I, I sense that you know a lot of these people are coming from a very particular religious experience, and you're not scorning that and you're not rejecting it, but you're saying there's maybe there's more there. And um, she to me is like an exemplar of the grounding and the generosity and and the, that non-anxious conviction. She is the the I don't know. How, she has all of that non-anxious conviction, right? And I think we get that largely from the older members of our church. And I think even if you even if you don't actually meet one of them, you feel it in the in the collective community right. that this 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 body has with it some of that. And I I couldn't say enough about what it does for us to have those people as part of our church. Yeah, I'm really really all about intergenerational mm -hmm. groups of people because I learn so much from people in the room, people in my cohorts, my children, uh, you, occasionally Luke. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't want to miss that. And I'm convinced that I have a wisdom that has value regardless of the age of the people around me. Mm -hmm. You've said a term as like an adjective a few times that I like a lot, but I have questions about both from uh, for the world and from an Enneagram perspective, non-anxious. You've like yeah. from non-anxious this, non-anxious that. 
I don't, we uh, had a conversation recently about someone with someone and y'all asked me like, Hey, do you have more fear or anxiety? And I was like, mine's fear. Mine's in the moment. It's fear. It's not as much anxiety. So anxiety is a little bit more foreign to me, but it just seems so, so awful. And when I do have anxiety, it sounds awful. And so when you describe something as a uh, non-anxious belief or non-anxious this, we, can you just unpack that yeah, a little yeah. bit more? I would, I would love to, because the one thing I'm not talking about is, um, for lack of a better word, like, like clinical anxiety. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of using the word differently from that. Um, in fact, I'm thinking of a person I know right now who's really close to me who struggles a lot with anxiety, meaning like in the clinical sense, but I would still describe him as a, as a person who lives with a really deep kind of non-anxious conviction. Um, I th- I'm not talking about people who maybe don't have a bodily reaction to environments or circumstances that triggers anxiety. That's a different thing. I'm talking about uh, a kind of spiritual um, grounding that I think is usually hard won. You don't, you can't, you can't just make it happen. Mm-hmm. I think it almost always is going to come on the other side of suffering and healing because it's only after you've been through it and you come out on the other side knowing that it didn't end you, it expanded you, that you're going to be able to be okay with the next one. And I think um, it usually comes um, in leadership, I think too, this might sound strange. Um, I think a lot of us think that the best kind of leader is the kind of leader who's committed to the organization's success. I actually think that's the second best kind of leader. I think the best kind of leader is the kind of leader who says it's so worth doing, it doesn't matter if it fails. Yep. And that's where that non-anxious presence comes from, I think, right? Um, and so again, I think that's not about um, clinical anxiety or, or triggers in environments, because that's a whole different thing, and I'm not qualified to talk about that, and I'm not criticizing that. I'm talking about just that, like, is there something, have you been through enough, and is there a place inside that just knows that it might all end and fall apart, but it was worth it, and you're, you're still going to be okay. Um, can we live from that? I still have sleepless nights. I still walk in on Sundays sometimes, like, worried about stuff. I don't mean that. I mean, in the, in the biggest sense of, like, what is it that we're doing, and are we going to be okay? And if you can say, this is what we're doing, and we're going to be okay regardless of what happens, and it was worth it regardless of what happens. And to me, that's just what I see in Jesus through and through. Not that he didn't weep in the garden, not that, not that he loved everything that happened to him, but that just he, you know, he, he, he knew enough about the reality that he was tapped into, that he knew that all these threats were provisional mm-hmm. threats at best. And underneath it all, he's going to be okay, you know. Does that help? Does that track? We have got to figure out a way to be in the room with Jason and Joe. Okay. Because mm. I'm telling you that you and I could just bathe in all of the non-anxiousness. Joe just doesn't get anxious. Joe doesn't worry. He doesn't, he doesn't get anxious. He doesn't have anxiety. He is so grounded because of all of his years uh, with a spiritual practice and, mm. and who he is that he is a non he is a walking non anxious human. Well it goes back to what y'all both spoke about earlier. It's a position with security that you don't have to defend. Yeah. The other thing is I I think we would we would not be fair to our friends, many, who are trying to deconstruct a a more restrictive church mm-hmm. and find a way to find themselves in Christ instead of in the institution. 
Mm. And there are historically and currently churches that create anxiety if you don't get it right, if mm. you don't behave, yes. if you don't confess your sins, if you don't give enough money, if you don't volunteer, if you don't do all these things, then it's questionable as to whether or not God's going to love you. That's right. And that kind of anxiety pervades many, many churches that I walk into to teach. That's so real. Institutions will inevitably preserve the problems to which they are the solution. That's it. And I, you know, even certain forms of gospel preaching do that, right? It's like we're preaching a version of the gospel that keeps you in, convinced that you're the problem without us. You can't be fixed. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You are my new five friend. Uh, that means a lot. Uh, thanks for the time today. It means a lot to be with you all. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, you yeah, my pleasure. You need anything from us or, or want or anything we can do okay. for you? Can I tell people about my book? Is yes. that, can we, can we talk Absolutely. About that for just a yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I wrote a book called When the World Breaks, and um, it's about the Beatitudes, but it's really about um, suffering and hope and how um, the hard things that you're carrying within you aren't the barrier to everything you're looking for, but they're the pathway toward it. And that's the arc that I see in the Beatitudes. Um, there's some Enneagram touch points in the book. Um, there's some personal journey in the book. And it's really about everything from like when your personal world breaks um, to when like the big stuff breaks in the world at large and how every one of those breaking moments sort of sets loose the same kind of spiritual invitation that I think Jesus is sort of drawing us into uh, with those eight strange blessings that he wrote in, or he spoke uh, in the Beatitudes. So anyway, if people are interested, um, that's one way that they can kind of hear more about what I'm wrestling with. It's called When the World Breaks, available, you know, wherever books are sold. I'll tell you what, if anybody can hear this podcast and not want to read what you wrote, then I'd be surprised because I oh. certainly do. Oh, that means a lot. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Here's a clip from the next episode of The Enneagram Journey. I have one, Joel. Yeah. So the comment on um, the antidote to envy being doing for fours is the antidote to envy just in general kind of doing, or is that very specific to fours? It is specific to uh, bringing up and including your repressed center. So when I, I don't experience envy very much. I got my own issues, but that's generally not one for me. But when I do experience envy, I have to bring up thinking. <laughs>